This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Scientists are rotten forecasters, almost as bad as economists. But I've nonetheless written a book rather potentially entitled On the Future. Here it is. But my forecast today will be very tentative especially in front of an audience where there are better experts than me. The book's theme is this. Our Earth has existed for 45 million centuries, but this century is special. It's the first when the main threats are induced by one species, humans. We're deep in the Anthropocene. We have an ever heavier collective footprint. We're empowered by ever more powerful technologies. These could be hugely beneficial, but if misapplied, they could trigger catastrophic setbacks to civilization. And such events would be global. We're so interconnected that no continent would be unscathed. It's an ethical indictment of wealthy nations that the gap between the actual state of the world and the way it could be is widening and not narrowing. COVID-19 has been a wake-up call. It has shown that our increasingly interconnected civilization is vulnerable, but also that well-directed science can be its salvation. So let me highlight a few trends. The world's getting more crowded. 50 years ago, its population was below 4 billion. It's now about 7.8 billion. But doom-laden forecasts 50 years ago by the Club of Rome, who's off the mark. Food production has kept pace with rising population. Regional famines still occur, and there's widespread undernourishment. But these evils stem from conflict and maldistribution, not overall scarcity. The number of births per year is now below replacement level in most countries. Nonetheless, world population is forecast to rise to about 9 billion by 2050. That's partly because most people in the developing world are young. They're yet to have children and they live longer. And it's partly because the demographic transition to low fertility hasn't reached some of the poorest countries. Avoiding mass hunger will require further improved agriculture, low-till, water-conserving and GM crops. And maybe also dietary innovations, converting insects and maggots, highly nutritious and rich in protein, into palatable food, and eating artificial meat and not beef. To quote Mahatma Gandhi, there'll be enough for everyone's need, but not for everyone's greed. Optimists say that each extra mouth brings two hands and a brain. But the geopolitical stresses especially if north-south inequalities aren't reduced, are surely worrying. Those in poor countries now know by the internet what they're missing. They're not fatalistic about the injustice of their fate. Indeed, I think the prosperous nations of the north, especially those in Europe, need to emulate what the US did for Europe after World War II and establish a mega Marshall Plan 
to help Africa close the prosperity gap with the North. And another thing, if humanity's collective impact on climate and resources pushes too hard, the resultant ecological shock could wipe out many species. We'd be destroying the book of life before we've read it. Already, the biomass in humans, cows and domestic animals is 20 times that in wild mammals. And chickens and turkeys outweigh all the world's wild birds. Biodiversity is crucial to human well-being. We're clearly so harmed if fish stocks dwindle to extinction. There are plants in the rainforest whose gene pool might be useful to us. And insects are crucial for the food chain and fertilization. But many of us feel that preserving the richness of our biosphere has value in its own right. To quote E.O. Wilson, mass extinction is the sin that future generations will least forgive us for. And to avoid massive encroachment on natural habitats, sustainably intensive, high-tech agriculture must be a goal. Moreover, these environmental stresses are aggravated by anthropogenic climate change. And as we've heard, under business as usual scenarios, we can't rule out later in this century really catastrophic warming and tipping points triggering multi-century trends like the melting of Greenland's ice cap. The case for urgent action is compelling. But politicians won't prioritize long-term decisions unless there's public clamor from their voters. Scientists must enhance this clamor by engaging with NGOs, by blogging and journalism, and enlisting charismatic individuals and the media to amplify their voice. Prominent recently among these has been a disparate quartet. Pope Francis, our secular Pope David Attenborough, Bill Gates and Greta Thornburg. They've collectively had a huge effect. Because it's hard to persuade the public to make sacrifices for the prime benefit of people in distant parts of the world decades in the future. But there's one win-win policy. Accelerating development of clean energy systems, carbon-free energy production, cheap storage and efficient distribution should be another global imperative. And it's hard to conceive more inspiring goals for young scientists and engineers than to ensure sustainable food and energy supplies worldwide in the coming decades. We should be evangelists for new technology. Without it, the world can't sustain an expanded and more demanding population. But technology has its downsides too. Indeed, many of us are anxious that it's advancing so fast that we may not properly cope with it and that we'll have a bumpy ride through the century. Advances in microbiology, diagnostics, vaccines and antibiotics offer prospects of containing natural pandemics. But the same research raises, and is my number one fear, the prospect of engineered pandemics. For instance, so-called gain-of-function experiments can make viruses more virulent and more transmissible. And the new CRISPR-Cas9 technique for gene editing is hugely promising, but there are ethical concerns 
and worries about possible runaway consequences of gene drive programs to wipe out species. So regulation is needed. But I'd worry that whatever regulations are imposed can't be enforced worldwide, any more than the drug laws can or the tax laws. Whatever can be done will be done by someone somewhere. And that's a nightmare. Whereas an atomic bomb can't be built without large special purpose facilities, biotech involves small scale dual use equipment. Indeed, biohacking is burgeoning even as a hobby and competitive game. The global village will have its village idiots and they'll have global range. And the rising empowerment of tech savvy groups or even individuals by biotech and by cybertech as well will pose an intractable challenge to governments and aggravate the tension between three things we want to preserve, freedom, privacy and security. For many of us, these bio and cyber advances are therefore scary portents of things to come. And these concerns are fairly near term within the next 10 or 15 years. What about 2050 and beyond? On a bio front, you might then expect two things. First, a better understanding of the combination of genes that determine key human characteristics and the ability to synthesize genomes that match these features. The physicist Freeman Dyson conjectured a time when children will be able to design and create new organisms, just as routinely as his generation played with chemistry sets. Well, if it becomes possible to, as it were, play God on a kitchen table, our ecology and even our species may long hope, not long, survive unscathed. So let's hope Freeman Dyson's idea does stay science fiction. But what about another SF concept, immortality? Research on aging is being seriously prioritized. Will the benefits be incremental or is aging a disease that can be cured? We've heard recently of the proposed Altos labs to address this. They're funded by billionaires, people who when they were young, aspired to be rich, and now being rich, they want to be young again. Dramatic life extension would claim to be a real wild card in population projections with huge social ramifications. But it may happen along with human enhancement in other forms. And it's at least surely on the cards that human beings, their mentality and their physique may become malleable through the deployments of genetic modification and cyborg technology. Moreover, this future evolution, a kind of secular intelligent design, would take only centuries, in contrast to the thousands of centuries needed for Darwinian evolution of a new species. This is a game changer. When we admire the literature and artifacts that have survived from antiquity, we feel an affinity across a time gulf of thousands of years with those ancient artists and their civilizations. But we can have zero confidence that the dominant intelligences a few centuries from now will have any emotional resonance with us, even though they may have an algorithmic understanding of how we behaved. And let me inject 
an astronomical perspective on timescales. It's taken more than three billion years for us to evolve our Darwinian selection from the very first life. But the sun's less than halfway through its life and the cosmos may go on forever. So we humans could be nearer the beginning than the end of the emergence of complexity, which is accelerating. We're not the top of the tree and we can have no conception of this vast cosmic future. And this speculation leads to another technology, space. During this century, the whole solar system will be explored by swarms of miniaturized probes. And the next step will be deployments in space or on the moon of robotic fabricators, which can build large structures, for instance, giant solar energy collectors. And what about human spaceflight? The practical case for this gets ever weaker with each advance in robots and miniaturization. If I was an American, I wouldn't want any of my tax money to go towards it. I think human spaceflight's future lies with privately funded adventurers prepared to participate in a cut price program far riskier than Western nations could impose on publicly supported civilians. Elon Musk's SpaceX and Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin are already offering orbital flights to paying customers. But they should avoid the phrase space tourism. It lulls people into believing that these ventures are routine and low risk. They must be sold as dangerous sports or intrepid exploration. But by 2100, courageous thrill seekers may have established bases independent from the Earth, probably on Mars. And Musk himself, now age 50, says he wants to die on Mars, but not on impact. But don't ever expect mass migration from Earth. No way in our solar system offers an environment even as clement as the Antarctic or the ocean bed. And here I disagree with Musk and my late colleague Stephen Hawking. It's a dangerous delusion to think that space offers an escape from Earth's problems. Dealing with climate change on Earth is a doddle compared to terraforming Mars. There's no planet B for ordinary risk-averse people. We must cherish our earthly home. Nonetheless, we should cheer on those brave space adventurers because they have a pivotal role in spearheading the post-human future and determining what happens in the 22nd century and far beyond. And let me explain why. These guys will be ill-adapted to their new habitat on Mars. So they'll have a more compelling incentive than those of us on Earth to redesign themselves. They'll harness the super powerful genetic and cyborg technologies that will be developed in coming decades. These techniques will, one hopes, be constrained here on Earth on prudential and ethical grounds. But the settlers on Mars will be beyond the clutches of the regulators. And we should surely wish them good luck in modifying their progeny to adapt to hostile environments. So it's these space-faring adventurers, not those of us comfortably adapted to life on Earth, who will spearhead a post-human era on Mars and far beyond. One of the most exciting developments in astronomy 
has been the realization that most stars in the sky are orbited by retinues of planets. There are many millions of planets like the Earth spread through the galaxy. Do any of them harbor life? We may get the first clues from the James Webb telescope. It's powerful enough to detect the nearest exoplanets as faint dots and to take spectra that would reveal if any of them are covered with vegetation. But to get an actual resolved image, not just a point of light, would require a vast interferometer in space. But that's a realistic goal in the next half century. Indeed, I say in my book that we should aim to achieve such an image of another Earth by 2068. I choose that year because it's a centenary of the famous Earthrise image taken by Ed Anders of the Earth while orbiting the moon, which became iconic for environmentalists. So to conclude, a cosmic perspective can actually strengthen our concerns about what happens here and now, because it will offer a vision of just how prolonged and prodigious life's future could be. In the aeons that lie ahead, even more marvelous diversity could emerge. The unfolding of intelligence and complexity could still be far from its culmination. We're all surely mindful of the heritage we've inherited from our forebears. If our generation are negligent stewards, poor ancestors as it were, we shall not only jeopardize the welfare of our children and grandchildren, but risk foreclosing vast future potentialities. So we need to think globally, we need to think national, rationally, we need to think long-term. Empowered by 21st century technology, but guided by values that science alone can't provide. So thank you for listening. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.